Oops. Okay, we are recording. This is PSA number six. This is the sixth time we've done it. It is Wednesday, May 13th. We are in week nine of quarantine. Something Kalia? like that. Yeah, it's been a while. It has been a while. We're still alive. We are still alive. And the food systems are still working so far. Food systems are working. And um, it's both better and worse than we expected. Oh, my God. There's a a squirrel outside my my window here. Okay. Yes. Amen. I think, like, different things are, you know, when when you say that, what things for you are better than you expected and what's worse? In life or as it relates to privacy, surveillance, and anonymity? I mean, I think we could cover both. Um, I've been thinking more and more about anonymity recently. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious to kind of <clears throat> dig in a little bit to, I think we, I talk a lot about and I think a lot about privacy and surveillance kind of goes with it. Anonymity is, um, I was talking the other day, I think it was on a, an Instagram live session for Spartacus about, um, how, I mean, tell me what you think of this, you know, that the last 20 years of the internet was about publicity and about self-expression and, you know, I, um, loved the idea that, you know, in 2003, I got my Seth Goldstein at gmail.com and I got in 2007, I got at Seth on Twitter and, you know, in 1990, whatever, I got sethgoldstein.com and that these are, you know, fundamental assets of mine. And now increasingly they feel like liabilities on some Mm. level, right? That we spent 20 years, uh, I spent 20 years creating a kind of public identity for myself on the internet because I thought that was valuable. And now I just feel like on some level, it's a risk. And how do I create, you know, it's it's kind of an oxymoron, but how do I create an anonymous identity for myself that's persistent? Right. I mean, just to support, one of the things that I work on, right, is digital identity. So one of the things that you were doing in claiming um, like Seth on Twitter or Seth Goldstein at Gmail is you're claiming a little piece of that private namespace for you because ultimately those namespaces are are controlled by those private entities that sort of as part of the deal of becoming a user give you a little piece of it and then in the domain name system you're renting your digital name from the the whole global registrar system DNS um, and so. You're feeling like now that you've put all this time and effort over decades to sort of claim your little pieces of that internet all connected to your name on that you go by and the name that's on your paperwork, that's potentially a liability. And what does – are you trying to – are you thinking about creating a coherent persona across a range of spaces that isn't linked to the real you or just having a name somewhere else that isn't you? Or how are you thinking about what you want for anonymity? Um, I mean, it's a leading question because I think, you know, one of the projects I'm working on, you know, for Spartacus is, is how do we give people 
a persistent anonymous identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's the safest way, I should I should have different emails and different telephone numbers and different credit card numbers for every single transaction. I mean, it, it is the, um, you know, the, the it's public key cryptography in a way, right? right? Um, and so I just thought, thinking about, well, you know, in the last 20 years, it was about publicity. And then let's say the next 20 years is about privacy. And how does that flip? And how does um, a kind of creative anonymity emerge? And insofar as Anonymity is the A of PSA today. I think we can just jump right into it. Yeah. I mean, the good news is, is that um, there's work going on in, in the community that I'm leading to get us closer to that. One thing that comes to mind is um, I developed something called the spectrum of identity. And on the one hand, you have totally anonymous speech and sort of radically so, like if you go to a place like 4chan, every single thing you say, even within a session, is anonymized. Like it's not linked back to the last thing you said in that same session. And some other places you get a sort of session ID and everything you say in that session is linked together, but you're anonymous. You don't have an ongoing username in the system, which could be considered synonymous. And then on the other end of the spectrum is like super verified, like in-person proofed, tons of document checking. Like that's a very strong um, sort of verified identity. And in the middle, there's a question of how do you actually take strong verified identity and connect it with anonymity and potentially create a new type of identity, a limited liability persona, so that you are willing... Yeah, (laughs) So that you're willing to be accountable for what you do, but unless you do something illegal to sort of break the the glass around your persona isn't broken. But if you start like threatening to kill people or start defrauding people, then there's a way to connect your activity back to the real you because there's, you know, some sort of formal process that that whoever's created the LLP for you is willing to break the glass and go actually no that was Seth who was defrauding folks or threatening to kill people because that's illegal which is different than all the things you want to do with an anonymous identity and so it's potential bridge between the world of anonymity with almost no accountability because it's impossible to figure out who's behind these accounts and people who want anonymous speech and who are willing to be accountable for their actions. Yes. So let's just distinguish anonymous from pseudonymous. You want to just walk us through that? Sure. Um, um, I, I've written about this. Uh, pseudon- a pseudonym is a persistent identifier that you use across many places. So it's like a, it's a, and that may or may not be linked to what we think of as like um, your real identity or the the name on your paperwork. So to me, a pseudonym, a digital pseudonym could be anonymous or it could be linked to your real name. It's just as it's a, an account name or a handle that you're using in multiple locations and hopefully a portability around it. And anonymity 
is more about how how one is sort of within sessions like like I was saying at 4chan you have radically anonymous speech where everything you say isn't even linked in the same session some video watching sites everything you say in a session is linked but you have no account there's no handle that you get and you re-log in every time and then there's other sites where you make up a handle and you return every time and you're persistent in your pseudonymity which is and then there's yeah and in a place like i mean there was a whole situation with world of warcraft several years ago where they were having trouble on their forums and they're like oh we know what we do we have everybody's real identity because they pay us by credit card we'll just post all that and that'll solve all the problems. And everybody freaked out because they were like, it's okay for wow, Blizzard, the gaming company to know who I am, but I don't want all my posts in your forums linked to my name on my credit card. Cause I'm, I'm a totally different person in gaming land than I am in real life. Right. And so this is where, you know, we need to, consider these these sort of um cross cross um context contamination almost for people where there's nothing wrong with having a gaming persona and playing in world of warcraft that doesn't need to be linked to real life you who's a banking executive right and, yeah. and the problem in the digital world is that so many things are linkable. Like as soon as you use the same name or you're pointing to the same email or you're using the same phone number because they require that for registration, everything you do gets potentially linked up behind the scenes or even in the foreground. Yeah, it's a problem. It's confusing. I'm trying to make sense of it all. I think that's why we're having these discussions. (laughs) So what what do we want to talk about this week? What are some of the uh, things on the table? Well, um, we actually had the disappearing episode. (laughs) So we recorded an episode and then we had a technical glitch. So all the things we said there got lost. But one of the things we talked about that would be great to share with our listeners and invite them to watch is the frontline documentary about the Uyghurs um, and the the western northwestern province of china where they've implemented um pretty severe and intensive surveillance of that population yeah where everybody does get reduced to a number yes well and so many people are reduced to numbers in bureaucratic systems so I mean, everybody's reduced to a number and the government is hyper-surveillancing everybody's phone and every car is required to have a GPS tracker on it. And the AI um, video cameras are racially profiling Uyghurs and tracking them more as they walk down the street and judging their emotional state. And if it's wrong, sending them to prison right away. Yeah, just for just for thinking bad thoughts against the government or against the ruling party. Yeah. I think it comes it comes to the fore a lot now because of just where we are in this virus and this pandemic and and measuring people's temperature coming in and out of buildings and 
making sure people aren't too close to each other and violating social distancing norms. Like a lot, a lot of the, a lot of these issues that the Uyghurs are, are facing. I mean, the question is, is, is it, is it coming to us? Well, if we don't build better, more ethical alternatives, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I debate with my colleagues working on decentralized digital identity systems is some of them are incredibly critical of what we are doing. And I, I sort of, well, I don't necessarily directly challenge them, but but the the issue is is that you have the Chinese system and to some extent the Indian Adhar system, which is all centralized, that will gain traction and momentum if there aren't good alternatives that are in alignment with democratic values. And that it's up to us to build something sufficiently good to address the legitimate identity information exchange needs in democratic societies and not try to build the ultra super perfect privacy thing that you could build in a lab, but isn't necessarily deployable at the population scales we're talking about of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing, going back to what you said at the beginning is this new decentralized identifier work um, one of the things that happens when your digital wallet is that every connection you make with an institution or with another person has a separate pairwise identifier. And so those un- those those connections are unique and gives you a secure cryptographic secure tunnel to talk to the person on the other end. And in order to share or prove who you are, there's a whole bunch of work being done on zero-knowledge proof type exchanges or selective disclosure where you can prove some things about yourself but not reveal all the information. And Let's double-click so, on, on zero-knowledge proofs. What's a zero-knowledge proof? Yeah. So, yeah, we could spend hours trying to describe it verbally, but the simple way to think about it, and it's sometimes hard to imagine because you – what what can be done digitally with the fancy mass, the cryptography, can't really be done in the physical world. It doesn't have a direct physical analogy, so it's often hard to share. But if you if you think about something like a driver's license that you get from the state, and it has a bunch of information about you, it has your name, your birth date, your address, your height, your eye color, your photograph. Now there's a lot of transactions where only some of that information is really important. Like when you go to a bar, you show your driver's license, but it has all that information, including your name and your address and your actual birth date. When really the only thing the guy checking your ID needs to know is that you're over 21 and that your photo matches the one on this authoritative source. And so with cryptography, you can take a complete, um, document like a driver's license and with fancy math hide all the irrelevant details and only share the relevant details with the party asking it for it so yeah, the zero knowledge is of me that need to be revealed in each interaction or each transaction and up until now 
I've been revealing way more about myself to everybody in every transaction. And it's just, it's TMI, right? It's, it's too much information, which too much sharing and the cat's out of the bag and Pandora's box is open. And how do we, um, how do we get our shit back under control? Yeah. Yeah. These are big questions that we're trying to figure out here. Yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out here. How are you feeling about the pandemic now in terms of um, getting back to work, getting back to normal, getting back to school? How has it changed your thinking about, you know, some of the work you've done the last couple of years? Well, I think the fact that in-person transactions and connections have become dangerous has increased the importance of the work around supporting people who have digital tools to prove who they are. I just actually this morning went to a um, a webinar panel thing, as there are many these days, that was put on by the R Street Institute. And they are, and, and Jeremy Grant, actually we could have him on one day, um, he was there presenting with the Better Identity Coalition. And apparently there's a move in the next um, next rounds of government aid for the crisis that we're in to put some money into digital identity at a national level to support infrastructure for it's, it was unclear what it's actually going to be for, and it actually made me a little bit worried about what they might fund because they seemed very enthusiastic about the real ID framework. And for those Isn't of you not come in October, so real I, the 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 compliance with real ID was coming in October, but it's already been pushed a year because of the pandemic because it was requiring most people in many states to get new driver's license with stronger identity proofing in order to get on an airplane. So the real ID sort of set out um, from the federal government what the norms were for identity proofing, meaning like, do they actually have a photocopy of your birth certificate on file or not? And if they don't, then they need you need to go provide it to them. Otherwise, they're not going to give you a real ID compliant license and you can't use it to get on an airplane. And that was actually passed in 2004 after 9-11 and for more than a decade keep, kept getting pushed down the field because the states weren't really down with the federal government having access to their entire driver's license database and Finally, most states have given in and said, okay, we'll play. I think there's still two states where if you want to get on an airplane, you're going to have to get a passport or some other federally acceptable ID, which is a little going to be interesting if that actually happens. Hmm. Yeah, I saw, I saw all the, you know, I guess back when I was flying a couple months ago, that real ID was coming in October. That's the last I checked. Do you have one from the state I, of California? I just have a driver's license. Yeah. So unless it has a little star on it, you don't have a real ID and they're not going to let you on the airplane. So you have to like go to the state of California and basically ask for a real ID compliant license. 
Hmm. Okay. I'll add that to my list of things to do. I know. And you can either wait a really long time for an appointment. And my way to hack the DMV is always to show up there at five in the morning and be the first person in line. Are people waiting in line at the DMVs? Are DMVs even open these days? I don't know, but it's a good question. Yeah. Hmm. What else is going on in the news these days that we want to cover? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm going to, for next week, I'm going to do research and find out what's going on with this um, ID and CARES Act stuff. Um, ID and CARES Act? Yeah, so the, the CARES Act are these government stimulus slash save us, save us packages, like the- Save the, us. The Stallone thing and the $1,200 a person thing, those were all part of something called text. the CARES Act. Yeah. Yep. So they're talking about the next iterations of those and what might be contained in them. So funding for digital identity at a national level may be in those next acts. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, maybe, depending yes. on what they fund. <laughs> I mean, um, in digital identity news, um, there was an interopathon amongst um, different companies that the federal government is funding to do digital interoperability in the ecosystem that I'm leading. So that's really exciting. And it went, it went really well. So hopefully they'll fund that type of digital identity and not a kind of phone home system like they have in India. What about contact tracing? You know, we picked this up early in the in the in this outbreak, and you know, I have a couple of friends that are working on different pieces of this. It seems like it's. I mean, I read I read more and more about you know governments and cities hiring contact tracers mm -hmm. um, and training them. And so that, you know, if and when there are outbreaks, they, you know, interview you and, and all the people you've been in touch with. Yeah. Well, so the good news is, is that the EU just released a common approach for safe and efficient mobile tracing apps across Europe. So they have um, a toolbox for common standards across tracing applications and a framework that they have to be voluntary and that the mandate be that EU citizens be able to use a single app independently of any member or state and that it all interoperates, which would be really cool if they, and I think they're, I mean, I think this is coming soon enough that it's, it's has the potential to get adoption and to be aligned. And from what I understand, it's that the Bluetooth key exchange mechanism um, that they're supporting interoperability around. Meanwhile, I, I read that, you know, video calls are, are booming among dating apps. Really? Yep. Oh, sense. because the dating apps are pushing you into video calls? Well, they had this functionality for years, but no one was really using it because people would meet and, you know, meet at bars and hook up. And now it's much more deliberate. People aren't meeting in person. And so like every other video technology, it's it's booming. Um, 
So it's just it's just curious that as these as these borders are being erected and people are are moving around less and less, that there's just more and more digital promiscuity. Well, we're just you know we're we're connecting streams and we're meeting people we haven't met in person, right. and our identities are evolving and emerging through that. Yeah. Well, like most women, my name in dating land is really different than my name in really li- real life. And for most men, it's the same. <laughs> I guess. Identities at stake in any case. Yes, definitely. And people are forming and reforming their identities around these platforms and around these new interactions. And Zoom bought Keybase. I don't know if we talked about that. that. That's really we were, yeah. News. We were using Keybase because for a while because Slack was not as secure as Keybase. Oh, Keybase has chat? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, Keybase was at least as as far as I know, Keybase was a encrypted version of Slack for Teams. Oh, I thought it was just like the place for keeping your keys. No, I think it. I mean, again, I may be wrong, but to me, I mean, he basically. I, I key, also believe it York. had chat functionality, but I hadn't thought of it as a chat app. I'd thought of it as like a key store vault thing. Well, what do you think of Slack? Is Slack a chat app? Sure. That's. Yeah. I mean, I have. <laughs> I'm I'm just starting to get along with my Slack. You're using it more or less than before? I'm using it more, but I feel less overwhelmed by it. I think Slack works really good as a tool for teams who are doing teamwork all day. And most and and all of the institutions and organizations, let's say not institutions, that I use it with are diffuse all over the place and it's like I'm finally getting to the place where I'm like oh okay if I go and check in there I can see all this stuff happening but I wasn't really paying attention because I'm not on a team for my data my data is this global organization and all these different people were sort of using it differently and now I'm like I'm feeling better about being able to tune into the organization and what's happening and then Ignore it for a week rather than ignoring it forever. Yeah. I mean, I use, I mean, we use Slack at at Spartacus and it's for, I use email less and less because what, you know, when I send an email, I feel it just gets dropped and lost. And I use Slack because I feel like there's some persistence there and it's a little bit more public in terms of the team. People have access to it. Um, I think it's a great tool. You know, it's, it's one of the, you know, less annoying pieces of software in my life right now. I mean, it's sort of Slack and Zoom and an email. And then I'm trying to use, I want to go on a news fast. I'm just too tapped into just the the gloom and and doom of, of the New York Times and outrage culture. It's trying to clean my mind. Well, I have to say that I'm a little bit, um, uh, I'm tired. Everybody's like, like all the news can talk about is the pandemic. And I feel like it's because all the reporters are stuck at home and they can't make imagine writing about something else. But for those of us, who, I mean, I lived and worked at home already. 
right? And then the rest of the world join me. But I wake up every morning, make breakfast, have a shower, put on work clothes, and shift my life. Like, I'm like, what are you people doing staying in pajamas? Like, I just feel like there's this there's a disconnect in terms of and it may be that they're actually not they're staying in pajamas because they're depressed not because they're actually like don't know how to work um but i would like to talk about something other than the pandemic and i think that's all anyone can talk about on the other hand it's a really big deal and we may not get out of this for years and this, you know, and, and then there's the all the the derivative effects and the consequences, and just the 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 mental health consequences of this pandemic are clearly, at least, feel way worse than the actual pandemic itself. People feel trapped, you know. People feel stuck, you know. There's a um, just slowdown emotionally for people. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's where I- I'm. I have to say my mental health improved in part because people started picking up the phone again Mm -hmm. in this way where it's like, oh, after a few weeks, I'm like, I'm talking to my friends more in a kind of like just chit chat way. And that felt really good. I was noticing. And I hope that that continues, even if we shift back to the way, way things were, um, but Even I totally hear you. The way things were, that's not going to happen. There's well, no shifting is, back. No, there's no back. We're in a liminal time that's going to move there forward. We go. Liminal time that's going to move forward. <laughs> but I mean, I think you know. I think one way of looking at it is um, that people aren't looking past you anymore. They're not looking past you at a party to talk to the next person. They're actually looking at you. Yes. And that's a good feeling. We're we're being seen, we're being heard. Nothing is escaping our attention. Mm-mm. That a lot of these feelings and issues that we've had are coming to the surface emotionally in all of our relationships with friends, with family, and um there's no sweeping anything under the rug. Mhm. You know who's doing a really great and she just started podcasting. It was really fantastic talking about these types of things is Brene Brown. Yes. So her new podcast, Unlocking Us, touches on um, aspects of mental health around this time and also how people relate in a really um, beautiful way. Yeah, I like. I heard her and Tim Ferriss talk, and then I've I've heard some of hers. I also like Michael Lewis's um, new season of Against the Rules. And he's oh, he's a, got a new season out. Yes, and he's in Berkeley, oh. and he's great. And um, you know, he doesn't touch on privacy, identity issues the way that we do, but he he works around it. I mean, last year was about the role of referees in life. Yes. And I think it's seven or eight. And this year, this season is about coaches. Oh. They come out every Tuesday. And, um, you know, unlike our wonderful podcast, you know, his is produced, right? This You get a sense that it's scripted and written and um, not just shooting the shit like we are. Um, but uh, I like it. And, um, yeah, 
but tell me, so, you know, you just said something very hopeful, which is things are, this is better for you, right? That the people are connecting. Like, let's talk about some of these uplifting moments through this experience we're all having. I mean, um, you and I are talking every week. It's great. We're talking every week. But we were, I mean, the thing is, six or eight weeks before the pandemic, we were already going to do a podcast. This yes, is we were. A, this is not a pandemic-inspired podcast. It's a pandemic coincident coincident podcast. Um, it's a pandemic-enabled podcast. Yes. Um, but I connected up with my friend Karen Stutters early on, like, in late February, um, I was understood that the type of lockdown that we have was coming because it had happened in one part of Italy. And I called up my friend Karen, and she's based in Seattle. And we actually started a blog because she was sending me materials she'd written about the current situation. I was like, and it was two pages long. It's not a tweet-sized thing. She was already on Twitter. I said, look, you need a blog, so let's start one together. And so we have a blog called Let's Have a Plan dot blog where we we are writing about the situation we face. And friends like that I, you know, there's there are friends who I would like text and see once every three months or something. Now I'm like picking up the phone and talking to them every week or every 10 days about how they're doing and what what's going on in life. And so that's been that's been the shift of like, you know, 10 years ago, I would be picking up the phone and talking to folks. And that kind of stopped because you'd have to schedule phone call like no one just called each other. And, and, and now I find myself on the phone with friends in a kind of way that I'll I wasn't doing before the pandemic and I'm doing now. Okay. So that's positive. Yeah. Are you getting out more? My big um, miss, the thing I'm missing most is going to play water polo. So instead of playing water polo, I'm just walking in the park near my house. There's like a 40 minute loop. and I either do it once a day or twice a day. Yeah. Same here in Mill Valley. I've been going back and forth to San Francisco a little bit more. My girlfriend lives in the city. She has a place there. So, you know, I think it's, what are they? My, my, I have a, a great friend in uh, in New York who's a book publisher and artist, and he talks about um, um, drilling a hole in the ceiling, right? That's what we want to do is we want to drill a hole through our ceilings, give ourselves a sense of hope and um, and and combat this sort of, Zoom fatigue. Do you have Zoom fatigue? Um, yes. And I'm also spending a lot of time in front of my computer when I'm not on Zoom because I'm working on my what is a computer class that I teach at Merritt College. So now I'm screening a lot of videos for that. But I mean, the surprising thing was at the Internet Identity Workshop that we led, we we were we use Zoom as the back end platform for the video but I, while I was in that conference, I didn't feel like the same Zoom fatigue, partly because it was so interactive and people were so engaged that it was really different than sort of one-to-many absorption of information. So how is your Zoom fatigue? Well, today, Wednesday, is um, a Zoom-free day. Ooh. I'm breaking up my weeks with, with no Zooms on Wednesday. 
Wednesday is a flow day where I'm trying to avoid, other than this, more or less, trying to avoid too much kind of scheduled scheduled work. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to break up the week. I mean, you know, people say every day is the same now. Sunday is Monday is Wednesday is Thursday. And, you know, what is the new normal? So one thing is, well, if I treat Wednesday a little bit like a weekend, somehow, then I have Monday, Tuesday for work and I have Thursday, Friday for work. So yeah. Wednesday becomes fun. So I'm having fun today. Got Yay. You. Well, Yay. I, yesterday I thought about, I was like, maybe I should have a couple of days a week where I don't go on my computer at all. And I just read, make post-it note graphs, mm-hmm. do things that are potentially for work, but just not with a, with a screen with like, or even just setting aside days and say this day I'm reading all day. Yeah. I feel that. My, I had a friend uh, come over yesterday and um, uh, we used uh, Oculus and I went into some of the Oculus and, and also played with new AR. Um, I, made a you know just it's kind of silly but with the ipad you can kind of look at i guess with any iphone now you can kind of look at little you know 3d animated objects and see it in your room you know little ar animals and stuff so i had a yeah. little augmented reality you know wolf in my studio that i was playing with and i played hide and seek you know in virtual reality i got a little nauseous but it was fun and um you know, we're getting sucked into the matrix more and more, unfortunately. But there's some fun out there. There's some. There's some. There's clearly some new interaction metaphors and experiences that I think are open to us. So that's good. I had this experience last night of um, I forget the name. It was. It was called. Um, damn it. Um, I forget the name uh, of the VR. It was kind of a game. And it was a multiplayer game, and I was in my VR Oculus set and I was kind of grabbing, it was like the scene. Did you see Ad Astra with, um, with Brad Pitt last year? Um, it's a beautiful movie. I forget who did it. Um, Todd something, but it was about him going and seeing his father, Tommy Lee Jones on Mars. And there was an ape or there was some kind of gorilla that almost killed him or something. But it was kind of like you're, you're, you're kind of, you're moving through a lunar spaceship but the, the 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 interaction metaphor was um was my hands grabbing um kind of grabbing and reaching my way through the spaceship that i it was no gravity and then i was using boosters to like play this kind of uh, quidditch game with other people and i could hear them and they were sort of talking and it was awesome it was bizarre it was it was fun it was it was technology but it wasn't that kind of like oh god here's my google calendar invite for the zoom call and it's ringing at me and i better get in and i got to look at all these different screens right right that like that we're clearly the this pandemic has i think we will look back and see shit there was a huge uptick of online usage right we're you know whatever we're saying we're using you know, the internet more and more, the internet's winning, um, brick and mortar and physical atoms are losing on some level because we're scared of touching things. Um, and there's sort of, I feel, a um, 
yeah, kind of a, a a dread and a depression when I scroll through my Instagram feed and I look at the news in the New York Times and I look at my email, my calendar, and all that kind of drudgery. Um, but then there are new virtual experiences and technology experiences that are more joyful. You know, people yeah. love Clubhouse. I haven't used Clubhouse a ton. Clubhouse is this kind of audio kind of community. Um, people have, uh, in the last couple of months, have sort of said, hey, what's happening with Turntable? You know, every couple of days I get a, hey, what if we, can we recreate Turntable? People want, and Turntable was a collaborative social music space that I helped to co-found a couple of years ago. Oh, fun. Um, Turntable FM. Um, but But people want, to break out of these narrow technology structures a little bit. And we can't go, I don't know. It's just, it's an interest it's a fascinating time. And I think it's turning everything upside down. Yep. And we'll keep exploring that. Yes, we will. Yeah. And it, and it, it does relate all back to identity and privacy and surveillance. And that's clearly top of mind. Um, but we're all getting lost through this and trying to find our, our new, our new bearings. Yeah. I mean, and uh, something we haven't touched on is how this is going to impact education, but that's probably its Fuck, own episode. School starts in the fall. <laughs> like, oh, you're getting tired of your kids. Love my kids, but you know, who, what, what, what is higher education and are they going to be on campus? You know, I've saw that the, California state schools are are now going to be, you know, canceling in person. I have one son that goes to USC. And he's a sophomore. He's just finishing his his last final today, and we still don't know whether or not he's going to go back. You're shaking your head. No, I. Who knows? We no. I, don't, I mean, we don't know, and um, we'll see. But it seems unlikely, in part because not because the students are at risk, but the faculty and the staff are. Yeah, and I, you know, I think, you know, my my girlfriend's daughter is at Cal Poly, and um, she, you know, is there with friends, and it could be that she's there on campus, but they're studying remotely together. Like strange new kind of work and educational metaphors that really break through anything we thought about in terms of ed tech. Yeah, yeah. We could invite some of the future of work folks to come and chat with us. That would be really interesting. Future of work folks. And I'd be interested to invite some, not not millennials, but like some Gen Zers, you know, some teens. So like what, you know, what is, how is their online identity shifted? How are they using technology differently now? I mean, obviously, you know, Zoom is obvious and they're probably all using Snapchat more and Instagram more, but um it's just, you know, it's my mind keeps exploding when I think about all this. Yeah. Well, um, we've been chatting for a while, so okay. we can um, say we goodbye to one. our listeners for this episode. But thank you for listening to Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity today. And we will be back next week. Do you want to we'll say who, who our we special have, guest is? We have the CTO of DuckDuckGo coming on which we're excited about. And um, that'll be exciting because I think, you know, DuckDuckGo was one of, what was the, it was the first, essentially it's a private search engine. You know, it's a search engine that started whatever, seven, maybe 10 years ago um, that 
was not in the in, in the surveillance business and not in the surveillance capitalism business, and it really prided itself on um, not sharing your search data um, and not monetizing that way. And it's, I think, now one percent of all searches worldwide, which is significant and growing. Yeah, I use them. Okay, they're my default. There you go. And if so, it doesn't work, then I go to Google, but that only happens like one in every 200 searches. So, Okay. Well, that's good. That's hopeful. Yeah. Thank you, Kalia. Thank you, Seth. Okay. We'll talk soon. Bye, yep. everybody. Bye.